0: Today, David Leeming is an English professor at the University of Connecticut. But back in the 1960s, when he was in graduate school, he was James Baldwin's personal assistant. And later, he continued to be close friends with Baldwin for more than two decades until Baldwin's death. Uh, Leeming's acclaimed biography of Baldwin, published in 2015, opens with a quote from the Hebrew prophet Ezekiel, Chapter 2, verse 5. And they, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear, yet shall they know that there hath been a prophet among them. That epigraph is appropriate for a number of reasons, even though um, Baldwin very much left the Christian tradition of his childhood. It was deeply formative, and he was a Pentecostal minister for a few years in his young uh, teenage days. Uh, And one of the reasons it's appropriate further is that it's from the King James version of the Bible. And as the African-American writer Daryl Pickney said of Baldwin, no other black writer I'd read was as literary as Baldwin in Baldwin's early essays, not even Ralph Ellison. There is something wild in the beauty of Baldwin's sentences and the cool of his tone Something improbable, too, in this meeting of Henry James, the King James Bible, and Harlem. A second reason that an epigram from Ezekiel is appropriate is that James Baldwin was also a prophet in the terms of our UU second source. The words and deeds of prophetic people who challenge us to confront the powers and structures of evil with justice with compassion, and with the transforming power of love. And Baldwin was a powerful prophetic voice, but to be honest, that also meant that he, like many prophets before and since him, he wasn't always easy to live with. In Leeming's words, almost from the moment I met Baldwin, I recognized that I was in the presence of a highly complex, troubled, and driven individual who, in one, on one hand, was as intensely serious as anyone I'd ever met in my life. On the other hand, I don't want to say he didn't enjoy life. He was a man who laughed a lot and knew how to make others laugh. And while clearly obsessed by what he saw as his witnessing role, his call to witness what was really happening in his country and reflect that back, he was just as committed to the life of the senses. When he ate a meal, smoked a cigarette, sipped a scotch, or touched another human being, he did so that was with, with deep pleasure that was evident and with an incomparable elegance and care. He was a man, like most people, with evident neuroses. He was not a saint, but he was a prophet. And I'll do my best to do justice to at least part of his prophetic life. In the spirit of full disclosure, though, any of you who have seen even a brief video of of Baldwin speaking know that words could never really fully capture the essence and the power of his charismatic presence. And if this sermon does leave you interested in learning more, there are at least two great documentaries about Baldwin's life. The first is called james baldwin the price of a ticket it premiered on pbs in 1990 just a few years after his death the only place i could find it streaming is on the sundance channel which unless you have some cable package that includes that you have to get to through amazon but by the way you can subscribe for free for a week and then unsubscribe which is what i did uh, the second is I Am Not Your Negro, uh, just from a year or so ago. And it makes many, that documentary, documentary makes many connections between Baldwin's life and our current, uh, current events in our country today. Uh, very powerful. I highly recommend them both. And I'm grateful that new work continues to be made about James Baldwin's life and work because uh, when he died in 1987 from cancer, he was only 63 years old. As a point of reference, he was born only seven years earlier than Toni Morrison, who is very much still with us. And it was Morrison's review of ta Coates's book, book, Between the World and Me, a few years ago, that compelled me both to read Coates very closely, as well as to go back and read more of Baldwin. Morrison wrote, I've been wondering who might fill the intellectual void that has plagued me since James Baldwin's death. Clearly, it is Tanahasi Coates. Morrison, of course, is far from the only person to find Baldwin's writing as relevant as ever. Even though he died two and a half decades before the start of the Black Lives Matter movement, Baldwin was always ahead of his time long before activists started emphasizing the importance of intersectionality, and that's, that's a big word, but just concentrate on intersection at the beginning of that word, intersectionality. It's about being attentive to the ways that systemic oppressions like racism, sexism, classism, the ways in which they intersect and they're interlocking in many ways. Um, and so long before all that, Baldwin was writing boldly out of his experience of being black, poor, and gay. Regarding what it meant in Baldwin's lifetime to be black, poor, and gay, keep in mind that Baldwin was born in 1924. By the time the civil rights movement even got started in 1954, he had already lived the first three decades of his life. Indeed, in 1948, six years before the civil rights movement was to really get started, uh, Baldwin, disillusioned with all of the injustices he saw here in his native country, he moved to Paris at age 24. And because I want to begin to give you a taste of Baldwin's inimitable writing style, here's just one sentence about his early days in the city of light. He wrote, Paris is, according to legend, the city where everyone loses his head and his morals, (laughs) lives through at least one histoire d'amour, which means love story, Uh, Baldwin did become fluent in French, ceases quite to arrive anywhere on time, and thumbs his nose at the Puritans, the city in brief where all become drunken on the fine old air of freedom. That's all one sentence. Uh, And perhaps living in Paris uh, was part of what gave him the courage to publish Giovanni's Room, a play with strong themes of homosexuality and bisexuality published in 1956, a full decade and a half before the Stonewall Uprisings launched the modern civil rights movement for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender rights. And while Giovanni's... um, Giovanni's Room is a landmark text in LGBT literature, it's really much more than merely a historic um, footnote. In a way similar to the ways in which James Baldwin's uh, letter to my 14-year-old nephew on the 100th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation, so he wrote this long-form essay published later as The Fire Next Time, the way that that inspired pretty directly uh Ta-Nehisi Coates to write a very similar letter just a few years ago to his 15-year-old son in the form of Between the World and Me. In a very similar way, Giovanni's Room directly inspired Barry Jenkins to make the film Moonlight that won the Best Picture Oscar last year. Have any of you seen Moonlight? There's just a few in the first service. I would encourage you to watch it if, if you haven't and are interested. In the words of one reviewer, Moonlight is not simply about the characters who are alienated gay black men who resemble Baldwin's heroes. It also has some of the writer's sensibility. The film, like much of Baldwin's work, feels as European as it does American. Its dark, oblique lyricism seems to come straight out of Michelangelo Antonioni or Ingmar Bergman. In describing Baldwin's popularity today, I should also be clear that he was in many ways a best-selling author, writer, social critic in his own time. He's not one of those people who just became famous later. In May 1963, for example, he was on the cover of Time magazine, and just a few days later, he was invited to meet in person with Bobby Kennedy. Uh, at that time, RFK was still U.S. Attorney General, and his brother John, um, his, ass- his assassination was not to come to a few months later that November. In looking back on that meeting between Bobby Kennedy and James Baldwin, the differences in their perspective and life experiences are both striking and have haunting parallels uh, to conflicts in our own time. Baldwin and his fellow racial justice activists uh, entered that meeting hoping that Bobby Kennedy would then convince President Kennedy to agree to personally escort a black child to school in the Deep South. They thought this would be a powerful act of solidarity and that anyone who dared spit on that child would then be spitting on the nation. But Bobby Kennedy dismissed this suggestion as a meaningless moral gesture. From the opposite view, Bobby Kennedy was shocked when, as their conversation continued, one of the activists was bold enough to share that he had been a freedom rider and had helped, uh, you know, part of helping desegregate the public bus system, uh, told Kennedy that after the failure of the federal government to protect him and other activists from racial violence in the South, he said, I just couldn't imagine now fighting for my country and the armed forces. Kennedy said, that seems incredibly unpatriotic to me. Baldwin and the other activists were equally surprised at Kennedy's inability to understand how their experience of racial injustice had made them feel alienated from their country of origin. There are strong parallels between these two different sets of experiences and the corresponding debates today. I could go through many, perhaps most obviously the debates around uh, NFL um, quarterback um, Colin Kilpatrick and him kneeling during the uh, national anthem and some people seeing that as nothing but unpatriotic and other people seeing it as deeply in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement and showing this disjunction between uh, the national anthem and his feelings about America and failing to live up to its ideals. Uh, Returning to that historical debate, Kennedy responded that his Irish descendants had also faced oppression here in America but had pulled themselves up. He added that, quote, with luck, a black man might be president in 40 years. He said that to Baldwin's face. For what it's worth, that prediction was actually fairly prescient. uh, prescient. Uh, Barack Obama, who was not quite two years old at the time that Baldwin and Bobby Kennedy were talking, uh, was elected president of the United States around 45 years later, that black man with a funny name. And it's important to consider the ways in which the reluctance of Kennedy and other white leaders, though, that their reluctance to be fully in solidarity with the struggle for racial justice, the way that contributed to the delay of equality. So it's almost like making a prediction and then putting your thumb on the scale you know, to uh, help make sure that happens. Along those lines, Baldwin retorted that Kennedy was partially right, but invited him to consider that most Irish people had immigrated to the U.S. much later than most African Americans who had not really immigrated, but been enslaved and brought here, Uh, and that an Irish American was already president. And then Baldwin said to Bobby Kennedy's face, whereas we blacks are still required to supplicate and beg you for justice. There's one other similar episode two years later that I also wanted to be sure to share, and that is Baldwin's 1965 debate at Cambridge University with the uh, major conservative intellectual, William F. Buckley, who was known for being really fast on his feet and um, um, quick thinking and all of that. Baldwin's assignment was to argue in support of the motion that the American dream is at the expense of the American Negro. And he said, yes, I'll do that. In, in Leeming's words, Baldwin had also always been a successful extemporaneous speaker. He had learned this skill as a, in the Pentecostal pulpit as a child. Uh, but this was one of his greatest speeches, and all of Buckley's infamous wit and reasoning, which was also on full display, had little effect in this case. After Baldwin, after comparing himself to the prophet Jeremiah, proceeded in his allotted time to outline with admirable dexterity what it had felt for him to grow up black in America. To realize, he said, as a child, that the land to which I had learned to pledge allegiance had not pledged allegiance to me. To be shocked to discover that to grow up loving Westerns and to grow up cheering for Gary Cooper as he killed the Indians and to one day wake up and realize that the Indians are me and my people. He said, my ancestors picked the cotton under someone else's whip for nothing. And to hear him deliver, I I can't even, just to hear him, I mean, he he said for nothing, for nothing. I mean, it was thunderous to hear him, his delivery. Most uncharacteristically, the Cambridge students gave him a standing ovation baldwin 's position won five hundred and forty four votes to buckley 's one hundred and eighty four Thankfully, that videotape was um, videotaped. You can watch it. The debate was videotaped and the incredible clips there are incredible clips from it in both of those documentaries that I mentioned. But of course Baldwin was not just interested in winning debates, he didn't want to just have nice rhetorical flourishes, he wanted justice, he wanted liberty, he wanted equal protection under the law for all people. As to how that might be accomplished, I will invite you to consider two more brief excerpts of his writing. The first is the famous final paragraph of that searing, long-form essay first published in the New Yorker, and it was unlike anything most New Yorker readers had ever seen. It was that essay to his um, nephew, that open letter to his nephew, later published as The Fire Next Time. The final paragraph went like this. If we and now I mean the relatively conscious blacks and the relatively conscious whites, if, who must, like lovers, insist on or create the consciousness of the others. If we do not falter in our duty now, we may be able, handful that we are, to end this racial nightmare and achieve our country and change the history of the world. But if we do not now dare everything, the fulfillment of that prophecy recreated from the Bible in song by a slave is upon us. That God gave Noah the rainbow sign, but no more water, the fire next time. As to whether we were more likely as a people to achieve the founding values of our country, that all people are created equal, or whether we were more likely to end up with apocalyptic violence, the fire next time, Baldwin had periods of serious depression in his life, despairing if we ever would. But he almost also famously said in his inimitable way at that intersection of Henry James, the King James Bible and Harlem, that he actually also felt that we had no other choice but to continue in the struggle for justice because, in his words, he saw despair as a sin. He added, there are also people who have proved to me that we can be better than we are. And that's one reason we continue to gather in places like this sanctuary to remind ourselves um, that we're in this together and to call ourselves to be better than we are now. In that spirit, Baldwin wrote these, these words in his 1964 book, Nothing Personal. He said, we must remember that nothing is fixed. Nothing is fixed forever and forever and forever, and that can cut both ways, right, towards justice and injustice. He said the earth is always shifting, the light is always changing, the sea does not cease to grind down the rock, and generations do not cease to be born, and we are responsible to them, for we are the only witnesses they have. The sea rises, the light falls, lovers cling to each other and children cling to us, and the moment that we cease to hold each other, The moment we break faith with one another, that is when the sea engulfs us. That is when the lights go out. And even though Baldwin is no longer with us, his work does continue to call us to act for peace and justice. The witness and memory of his life challenge us to keep leaning in toward justice, toward hope. His funeral was held at New York City's Cathedral of St. John the Divine, the same church in which more than a decade earlier he had been given an award for being one among the prophets of the 20th century. Toni Morrison's eulogy, later published in the New York Times, began with these words, Jimmy, there is too much to think about you. There is too much to feel. The difficulty is your life refuses summation, and it always did. Your life invites contemplation instead. I never heard a single command from you, yet the demands you made on me, the challenges you issued me, were nevertheless unmistakable, even if unenforced. That I work and think at the top of my form, that I stand on moral ground, but know that that ground must be shored up with mercy. That the world is before me and I need not take it or leave it as it was when I came in. Morrison concluded, you knew, didn't you, Jimmy, how I needed your language and the mind that formed it. How I relied on your fierce courage to tame the wildernesses for me. How strengthened I was by the certainty that came from knowing that at least you would never hurt me. You knew, didn't you, how I loved your love. You knew. This, then, is no calamity. No, this is jubilee. Our crown, you said, has already been bought and paid for. All we have to do, you said, is wear it. And we do, Jimmy. You crowned us. So as we continue to reflect on the legacy of James Baldwin's prophetic life and work, I invite you to remain seated for a second, but go ahead and turn in your hymnals to 407. This spiritual that we'll sing in a few moments, it invites you to see the ways in which it powerfully represents the radical inclusion at the intersectionality of race and class and sexuality and gender and other oppressions that Baldwin embodied and lived. Accordingly, the Welcome Table, it is the title of the unfinished play that preoccupied Baldwin's life right up until his death. This final unpublished play was about the legendary performer Josephine Baker's home and her pre- and her practice of adopting young people from all backgrounds, all cultures, all ethnicities into her family to eat around her kitchen table. Her welcome table as we hear that call to find places like that to create places like that's what james baldwin left us with um, please rise and body your spirit let's sing together the welcome table nick will play through it once a few more things um... I think one of, so we have the Poor People's Campaign this afternoon, uh, and I think some of you are probably quite aware of this. That the sort of heart and soul behind that is William Barber, uh, the Reverend Dr. William Barber. Uh, so North Carolina, you may have heard about Moral Mondays, and they've had this you know, tried to have success in North Carolina with with changing, you know, dismantling racism and in various things, and so he's trying to kind of expand all that and say what we learned in North Carolina, let's let's show to the nation and. Uh, Barber's one of the most powerful heirs, I mean, probably the most powerful heir to, to Dr. King's legacy uh, today. And the Poor People's Campaign is intentionally built around um, uh, what Dr. King called the three greatest threats to beloved communities he said, you know what is it that holds us back from living in living achieving Dr. King's dream right and he said it is it is racism it is uh, militarism and it is um, poverty so what you'll be hearing this afternoon for those of you who can come is you're going to hear a speaker on systemic racism a speaker on poverty and a speaker on militarism on the, the war economy and then the fourth thing you're going to hear could have so you know keep in mind that Dr. King did tragically was tragically assassinated before the first earthquake Day. So, you know, just keeping that in mind, they've added ecological destruction as, as a fourth um, peer. So you'll be hearing people speaking about that, and that very much relates to the intersectionality that Baldwin lived, right? So saying we need to pay attention to the way these are interlocking oppressions. that We need to, we need to not be wary of stumbling into what is sometimes called the oppression Olympics, where, right, we start fighting against each other to figure out whose uh, oppression is worse, and instead say, how can we say... Everybody's struggle's real, And how do we work together for collective liberation? And I think that's ultimately what Baldwin was about, that he would often say, one of the phrases he said most in his life was he would say, I am black only so long as you think you're white. And he would also sometimes in a sharper way. And Barbara's quoted this. Uh, he, he, you know, if he wants to get a crowd into silence, he starts by quoting Baldwin's famous question: "Why do? Why does America need the N word?" Except he doesn't say the N word. Neither does Barbara, but I do. Uh, and he uh, so that and but saying it without abbreviating is you know, gets the crowd like, "Ooh, okay, let's listen. What's going on?" And but he wants to ask: Why do we need? Why do? Why is this that dynamic in human nature? Where Many people feel like they need to be, they only feel worthy if they're better than someone else instead of having both intrinsic self-worth and feeling deeply connected to other people. Because that's what Baldwin... Baldwin felt that. He felt deeply... You use seventh principle, right? The interdependent web of all existence. He felt deeply that his liberation was tied up in everyone's liberation and that he wasn't fully free until everyone was fully free. And that's what he called people to. Um, To read just one... Where are we time-wise? So... um, I won't read all of this, so I was going to read a final quote from him, but I'll uh, I will say that he did discover in Paris something pretty similar to John kabat Zen's famous book uh, uh, "Wherever You Go, There You Are." He did discover that in Paris. That's one of the reasons he came back. And you know, he was at Selma with King, and he was uh, he wasn't allowed to speak at the March on Washington. He was there because they knew that he wouldn't stay on script, and they didn't know what he was maybe going to say. That uh, he did want to speak, they wouldn't let him. Uh, but that, uh, so to keep in mind, the, the, thing, the final thing I'll say, I did bring a copy of this, that you, you can buy on James Baldwin's FBI file, this is the, no, not all of it, there are, there are 1,900 pages in James Baldwin's FBI file, and if you compare that to you know, quite a few other FBI files that were, have been released from that era, ERA, also slash ERA, R O R error uh, that uh, he was incredibly, his procedure was as incredibly threatening by many. That because of who he was, right, that he was not just black, not just gay, but gay, black, and poor, and talking through all of those lenses and together and trying to, and you know, he would regularly say, you know, we've got to come to see that we are siblings. We human beings are all siblings. I mean, he didn't know this. We know this now from science that we're ninety nine percent. plus percent related on the DNA level, right? We truly are one human family. And we're either going to act like that and live into achieve our country, achieve our world, achieve our species and what's possible, or the fire next time, right? We're going to blow each other up in the process. So our call then is to do what we can to continue our journey in love, and love is incredibly powerful and, and part of what Baldwin was about, to continue our journey in love, to care for one another, to care for this one earth, to do justice and to make peace, uh, and that whatever taste or touch you've had this morning in this time and place of hope, of love, of peace or joy, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. May you live boldly and with thanksgiving.